Well, we spent several weeks in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And in so many ways, that is the climactic pre-crucifixion passage of the Gospel of John. Now, we know that the story's not over. We, of course, know the story's not over with the crucifixion. But the events begin to take on a different tempo. And, of course, everything is now focused on what we know will be happening with the arrest and trial and crucifixion and death and then resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven. But if we think of it in the lifespan and in the chronology of what was experienced by the disciples, Jesus' teaching had been so consistent, his, his final discourse, this farewell discourse, so lengthy, and then in chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, so climactic, what would follow? Now, when we think about the events of Christmas, uh, years ago, I used to kind of give a test to people about their knowledge of Christmas. And, uh, you know, it could be kind of a Christmas party thing that Christians do, or just, uh, just you get Christians together and I actually had it and copied it, and I would pass it out and say, you know, how much do you know about Christmas? The fact is that we who know a great deal about Christmas forget a lot of the details about Christmas and the sequencing of Christmas. And the same thing is true about the events of the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, we have four Gospels, and we need all four Gospels. We have the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who see things synoptically, the one eye, uh, they're, they're, the structures of their, of their Gospels are very, very similar. And then we have John. But we are studying John for the moment, at least in the first reading, as if we don't know Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're just, at, at the first reading, we're going to be considering that we are studying John, and this is what we know, and this is all we know for a moment. Chapter 18 begins, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Well, this is the famous garden, and it says across the Kidron Valley. This does not mean uh, anything equivalent to what we might say a major mountain valley. We're not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Jerusalem, of course, the city of David, on a hill. And there are the hills around it, and the distance between the two hills is often described as a valley. And uh, there would often be brooks or creeks that would naturally occur where these uh, valleys would hit their lowest point. And once again, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know you're not talking about something that needs a bridge, usually, but sometimes you are. But there would be a, a, a brook that you would cross, there would be a valley that, uh, that would be marked by that brook, and there would largely be for irrigation, especially in rain. This would be during the time of spring, and so you'll notice that uh, it's significant that they've gone across the Kidron Valley. We're told that these things happened after Jesus had spoken these words, these words being the high priestly prayer. Once Jesus completed that prayer, so in chronology, we're in the same time sequence. There, there's no break. There's no period of days. There's not even implied a period of hours between when Jesus completed that prayer and when these events take place. 
when Jesus had spoken these words, very interesting, uh, the prayer referred to just in that way, the, the words that Jesus had spoken, he and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and the disciples entered. Now again, this is biblical theology, and this is something we might miss. Jesus and the disciples are in a garden. Where does the human story begin? It begins in a garden. And especially as we're reading John, there is no extraneous detail. That's true of all the scripture, but what I mean in John is that as you're looking at this, you understand there's a lot of biblical theology here that might not be as present in the synoptic gospels that are more historical and chronological in their recounting of the life and ministry of Jesus. But remember, John begins his entire gospel by going back to in the beginning was the word and making very clear creation was made through him. But now when Jesus is about to do what he has come to earth to do, when he is about to make the sacrifice of his own life for sinners, he takes his disciples into a garden. So the garden wilderness motif is, is all throughout Scripture, and you find it right there in, in Genesis. When Adam and Eve sin, they are expelled from the garden, and uh, the Lord puts these uh, horrifying angelic creatures there to, to guard the garden so that they cannot get back in there in the wilderness. And so ever since humanity has been expelled from the garden, We've been in the wilderness seeking to get back in the garden. That's one of the major points of biblical theology. We're seeking to get back into a garden, but the garden is forbidden to us, uh, except for Christ and his kingdom is the reestablishment of that garden to the extent that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But it cannot be accidental that John tells us that when Jesus is about to begin the, the sequence of events that will be the fulfillment of his ultimate mission, and remember Jesus referred to this himself, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has now come. Where in this hour does he take his disciples but into a garden? And what does the garden represent? You say garden represents life. Well, yes, but in the truest sense, the garden represents the order of the kingdom. This is, this is the way things ought to be. Uh, humanity was given this garden, which surrounded by wilderness is order, it's life, it's gift, it's productivity, it's beauty, it's abundance. Well, the garden into which he took his disciples was basically a cultivated garden, likely of olive trees and, uh, and some other vegetation. But, uh, but there in that part of the world, g given the arid landscape, you see a garden even before you are in the garden. The distinction between the garden and the wilderness is massive. doesn't have to be explained. Jesus had often taken his disciples here. We're told that. In verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this is a place the disciples were accustomed to going with Jesus. It's interesting Again, putting the four Gospels together, Jesus went into a garden like this, to, often to pray, and uh, it is also clear that he took his disciples into such a garden often to teach. Judas knows where it is. And remember, so far back now in the Gospel of John, Jesus has spoken 
to Judas, knowing that he would betray him. All the way back in John chapter 6, we are told, when Jesus was talking about those who were falling away in the larger band of disciples, and he asked the, the disciples, do you also want to go away? Jesus knew what was in man, and he knew the one who was going to betray him. Jesus had already told Judas what you must do, do quickly. What Judas is doing now is the ultimate act of betrayal. This is the actual involvement of Judas made more clear than we might otherwise have thought. Again, if you just think about recounting the events of the arrest and passion, the, the crucifixion, the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll often, of course, have to make recourse to Judas. We have to explain Judas as the betrayer. And we'll describe Judas as the one who more or less went to the authorities and, and gave them what they needed in order to take action against Jesus, and he told them where Jesus was. But now you see that Judas's involvement is more active than that. Judas is actually taking them to where Jesus is. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Again, we pass over that pretty quickly. We ought not. We ought not to pass so quickly. So it's not just that Judas went to the authorities and told them that what they wanted to hear about Jesus in order to make charges against him. It's not just that he, they told him that Jesus was in Jerusalem and that he could tell them where Jesus was. It is that he is actually the active agent here. So it's not just that he's the betrayer. He is actually the, the one who has procured the soldiers. And it, it's, actually, it's actually true that in this verse there is more than you might think. So, for instance, look at the soldiers and how they are described. The soldiers, the officers, are from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And, and we, we've seen that that opposition coming from them all along. We know that that's where the, the, the real opposition is coming from. We, we know that the Romans are not going to be without responsibility, but the Romans do not see Jesus as a threat. At no point is there any evidence that the Romans actually consider Jesus an insurrectionist of any kind. It, 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 at no point did the Romans actually suffer under any illusion uh, concerning what the charges against Jesus were really all about. This is a Jewish issue. But notice what the soldiers have with them. They have with them lanterns and torches and weapons. Lanterns and torches and weapons. That, that, that's not accidental either. Lanterns and torches and, 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 and weapons. There's so much attention these days to policing. So many questions being asked. You know, so many techniques of policing that are now a part of public conversation. Should the police do this? Should they do that? One of the background realities of the current conversation is the fact that, as one police official put quite bluntly just recently in the debate, he said, maybe you folks haven't noticed, but the people we're trying to arrest don't want to be arrested. That turns out to be crucial to the entire dynamic. The, the people who they have gone to arrest do not want to be arrested. And an arrest, in this sense, is an act of controlled violence. And that's exactly what we have here. Exactly 
What we see in John chapter 18 is at least what is supposed to be controlled violence. They come with lanterns and torches and weapons. To arrest whom? Jesus. Now, this would have to be done with uh, soldiers, who, by the way, are Roman, and, and yet then officers of the, of, of the scribes and the Pharisees, the temple authorities. So here you see how closely, under the administration of Pontius Pilate, but typical of what you probably would have seen elsewhere, except Jerusalem wasn't just like anywhere. It was a, a, a place where insurrection regularly happened, and order was difficult to maintain. The Jewish people did not like their Roman overlords. I made that clear. But the fact that three things are mentioned, lanterns and, and, and torches and weapons, indicates that they were ready for a massive manhunt against a dangerous criminal. The point is this in policing, in that time, you would not have sought to arrest someone at night unless you just had to. It's dangerous and it's difficult. It turns out that even in this case, it was more dangerous and difficult than we might remember. They're arresting Jesus as if they're hunting down an armed terrorist. They're going after Jesus as if they have, just for some reason, implausible as it may seem, they've bought into the idea that he's a threat to the Roman Empire. But of course, it's the Jewish authorities, and it may... We're, they're made very clear by identification here. It's the priests and the chief priests and the Pharisees who are the officers, but and Judas is their agent, and Judas has procured this band of soldiers, but it would make much more sense under any other circumstance to arrest Jesus. Judas knows where he is. It would be much more sensible to arrest him during the day. Maybe they were concerned about the response of the crowd. We know that from other incidents in all four of the Gospels, that they were afraid of the crowd. But still, there is implicit violence in this. Someone looking at this for the first time who would know this in the first century context would understand that this is not a calm arrest. This is a band of soldiers led by Judas of all strange things marching towards this garden. And again, just think of the picture here. You have a garden of peace, rest, order. Jesus there with his disciples. He's taken them there often. And now you have these soldiers coming with lanterns and torches and weapons to arrest Jesus. Now, assuming that Owen knows the Gospel of John for a moment, and assuming that we're reading the Gospel of John maybe for the first time for a moment, when we look at this, you can see that there's something different right now in the gospel than has ever been here before. There's a, there's a sense of danger. There's a, there's a quickening of the pace. I mean, just how long it took, chapter after chapter for the farewell, farewell discourse, chapter in its entirety for the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And now all of a sudden, in just a matter of a few verses, things are happening really, really quickly. When Jesus says, my hour has come, his hour is coming, it's upon them, it's upon him with haste. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. 
When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In just a few sentences and how fast everything changes. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. And when the, the soldiers came in with their torches and lanterns and their weapons, Jesus doesn't wait to be addressed by the arresting force. Notice that. It's Jesus who speaks. Jesus doesn't wait. Jesus speaks. He knows what's happening. He, of course, is sovereign over the entire process. People looking at it would say he's the victim of this. But, of course, this is why he came. And then he'll tell the disciples that in just a matter of moments. But he speaks out to the soldiers and says, whom do you seek? They honestly said Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now again, wait just a minute. I am he. This is the Jesus who has, in the Gospel of John, disclosed himself in all of these statements in the structure of I am. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am he. And notice that Jesus is not answering their question. No one asks Jesus, who are you? Jesus cries out to them saying, who are you seeking? When they say Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. Now again, you look at that and you say, well, this is an interesting little conversation, and you have the identification of the suspect they've been looking for. No, there's, there's so much more going on here. Remember, Jesus has taken his disciples into the garden. Think biblical theology, out of the wilderness, into the garden. Into the garden come these men of violence with torches and lanterns and weapons. But Jesus is sovereign over the entire process. They have come to arrest him, but he is, he is clearly in charge. He says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of, of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Don't, just don't, don't miss that. That Jesus is, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is sovereign here. Jesus has come to die, and he will do that in fulfillment of the Father's mission, in obedience to the Father's purpose. But he will not act as if he is the victim of the circumstance. There's more. When Jesus, well, let's go back to the, the line before. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. So there's the us and them. So very, Jesus is with his disciples. Judas is with the, the arresting soldiers and officers. And that becomes very crucial because there's a, something like a standoff. There's surely some physical distance, but that physical distance is closing. Judas is with them. When Jesus, in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you notice that before? Have, have, 
Have you, have you thought about this before? Have you noticed that when Jesus said, I am he, I am, when Jesus said, I am, they fell to the ground. What do we do with that? Why would soldiers with torches and lanterns and weapons, with, with, with the authority not only of the, of the temple authorities, but more importantly, the authority of Rome, the authority of Caesar, confronted with Jesus of Nazareth, who says, I am he, they're the ones with weapons, they're the ones with torches, they're the ones with lanterns, they're, they're, they're the ones representing Rome. But when they hear Jesus say, I am he, they fall to the ground. Maybe Ezekiel will help us to understand in the very first chapter of the prophet Ezekiel. It'd be profitable to read the entire first chapter, but for the sake of time, we're going to go to the very close of the chapter. Ezekiel, in his call as a prophet, has received this amazing and astounding vision from the Lord. He saw the glory of the Lord, and the very last verse tells us, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel knew that he had seen the glory of the Lord. This is a revelation of God. And in response to the revelation, the only thing he needed to do was to fall. He fell on his face and heard the voice of one speaking. That's Ezekiel in the Old Testament. There would be other parallel passages. But in the New Testament, let's consider the experience of the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The experience of seeing the glory of God, of being presented with the revelation of God, means that both Ezekiel and Paul fall down. And again, in both the Old and New Testaments, there will be other parallel passages. What does the falling down mean? The falling down means the presence of the revelation of God. The presence of the revelation of God, such as took place in a very different place, in a wilderness, in a wilderness where Moses saw a burn, a, a, a bush that burned and was not consumed, a bush of flame and a fire, but not consumed. And he heard the voice of God speaking to him. And it was there that when Moses said, whom shall I say has sent me? God named himself I Am. And now in a garden, the very incarnate Son of God, confronted with those who have come to arrest him and the one who had betrayed him, when he takes the initiative and says, whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. Their response is to fall down just as if 
just as if they had clearly encountered the revelation of God. I'll be honest, I think if I were just speaking to someone and even thinking of John 18 and recounting this, this passage, I think if we're not careful, we miss something like that, but we don't want to miss that. We, we don't want to miss that they fell down. The, the fact that they fell down means that they know what they're doing. They didn't fall down because they were afraid of his voice. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus still presses the initiative. You know, conceivably at that point, he could have sought to get away. The soldiers are flat on the ground. They who came in such menacing strength are, are now revealed to be immobilized by awe. But Jesus still continues. He's, he's very much in charge here. So he asked them again in verse 7, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. What are you doing there on the ground? The dynamic is very hot. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So Jesus has the eleven. Wouldn't be the 12 at this point. It would be the 11 because Judas has betrayed him. He has his disciples in the garden where he has taken them customarily before. Judas had been with them, but now Judas is separate from them. Judas is with the soldiers. The disciples are with Jesus. And Jesus says, well, if you're seeking me, then let these men go. You're not bringing an indictment against these 11. But then we're told this was to fill, fulfill what he had said in John chapter 6, which we saw, of all the Father gives him, he will lose none of them. He's not going to lose them even before the crucifixion and resurrection. He's not going to lose them in the garden into which he has brought them. He is not going to lose any of his own. That's one of the most precious promises for Christians. We may die. Yes, we will die. We may die under the most extraordinary circumstances as Christians have. But we will never be lost. He will lose not one of them. Well, again, consider the context. There's an escalation here. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. And by the way, that would be, you might say, a conflation. A conflation of John 6, but also of John 17, the high priestly prayer, where Jesus continually spoke of the church, of those who are his, as the one the Father had given him. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Again, it's, it's difficult for us. And this is what in the field of literature and also given the philosophical movements of the 20th century, this was often what was described as the impossibility of a second naivete. Once you've read the chapter, you know the chapter. You know something about the chapter. It's hard to surprise anyone anymore. It's this way when you're reading books to children. You're reading books to children. There's a surprise coming. But if they've heard the story before, 
they know where the surprise is. By the way, that doesn't make them any less interested in the story, as you well know. They want to hear it all over again, and they'll sense some sense of surprise when you get to this place again. But it's not the surprise like the first surprise, because they actually do know what's coming. It's very similar here. We know that Peter's going to do this, and yet we need to be a bit more shocked that he does this. It's, it, it's more violent, and, and it's actually grotesque. So the response of Peter when Jesus was uh, arrested, and remember that Jesus had been taking the initiative, and so just, just follow here. The audacity of Peter is worse than you think because it wasn't like the, the soldiers even had the opportunity to come up and say, is Jesus here? Which one of you is Jesus? No, Jesus took the initiative saying, whom do you seek? Not once but twice. He had just said, if you're seeking me, then let these men go. We're told that was to fulfill what he had already said about not losing one of his own. And then one of his own. I mean, good grief. He hardly said, I will lose not one of them. When one of them pulls out a sword and decides he's going to end this thing right now. Quite incompetently. You might say that uh, the kingdom of God is not going to be taken by force, not by our force. And certainly not by this force. I don't want to insult you this morning, but you do not look like the landing party at D-Day. This is just not what we're called to. Why would Peter have a sword? Well, because a certain kind of of sword, a gladius, uh, the, the short sword, which is basically a very long knife, would have been a rather common uh, piece of equipment for a man for all kinds of reasons. I mean, this is a very dangerous world. And uh, this would be the equivalent of walking around with a uh, revolver on your hip. Uh, This is just what people in the West would put on. This is what a man in the first century in in Judea would have put on. And uh, it was worn generally around the waist, uh, just tucked in. But it it was there so a man could get it in a hurry. And it shows up again in Scripture in places such as Paul's metaphor of the armor of, uh, of the Christian found uh, there to include the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Sharper, we are told, is Scripture than any two-edged sword in Hebrews chapter 4. The sword is not the long sword referred to here, but the, the short sword. And it is deadly, but it's deadly in a competent hand. The point is he cut off the man's ear. Clearly, Peter did not intend to cut off the man's ear. That's the whole point. He was aiming at the man's head. And uh, the man evidently turned in such a way that instead he cut off his ear. In any normal literature, this would be considered farce. I mean, if, if this were just some kind of narrative we were reading, this would be considered farce. You know, the man decides he's going to courageously exercise deadly force, and he ends up cutting off a man's ear which, just to put this into our kind of narrative context, would basically tick him off. It didn't kill him. But the point is that Peter did this, no doubt thinking he was serving the Lord. And this is another danger sign to us. It's just it's like a flashing light. Jesus tells his own disciples, you're not going to take this kingdom by force. You're not going to take this kingdom by force. And you are not going to take this kingdom by force. You end up cutting off ears for crying out loud.
But of course, in this context, it isn't farce. It just shows the incompetence of the disciples, and it is not just they, it's we. The incompetence of Christians to orchestrate anything like this and to protect the Lord when the Lord is actually accomplishing the mission that he was sent to do. John tells us, by the way, the servant's name was Malchus. Don't look for any particular meaning in the name. The fact is that he's just documenting with specificity. So, you know, you can find out. And by the way, there's a Malchus mention. Um, that one, as if to say. It was his ear that was cut off. Service name was Malchus, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus rebukes Peter. Now, it, it, it's not a harsh rebuke, but it is, it is an incredible rebuke in theological terms. Jesus turns to him and says, put your sword into its sheath. And then what follows is his explanation in the form of a question, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now remember the cup. Remember the Lord's Supper uses his reference to the cup. Receiving this cup, drinking this cup, the metaphor for fulfilling his covenant ministry. That's why in the covenant, the cup is so important. The, the cup, even the cup that we share together in the, at the Lord's table, that cup represents the mission of Christ, the saving mission of Christ. Yes, it is holding the, the, the juice, the wine that represents his blood, but more than that, it's symbolizing the mission for which he came. You look at the baby in, in, in the manger in Bethlehem, and what are you seeing? You're seeing a baby with a cup. You see, you see Jesus in the temple when he was 12 with the, with the teachers. You see Jesus with his cup. You see Jesus calling his disciples. You see Jesus performing his miracles. You see Jesus teaching on the, on the plain and on the mount. You see Jesus in his confrontations. You see Jesus teaching his disciples. You see Jesus in the farewell discourse and in the high priestly prayer. It is Jesus in the cup of his calling. He says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the Father's assignment. How many times has he said, I have no will but to do the will of the Father? This is, this is, this is who, why I'm here, is to obey the will of the Father. This is what Jesus has said quite clearly in that prayer in which we spent so many weeks where Jesus spoke clearly to the Father in this moment of his ultimate obedience about looking forward once again to sharing the glory that they had together before the foundation of the world. The, the mission that the Father gave to the Son is represented by this cup. And it is not just the, the, the soldiers who appear to the disciples to be threatening the cup, it's actually the disciples who are threatening the cup, not that they have any chance to prevent it. The point is, Peter sought by force to stop the arrest of Jesus, but Jesus basically says to Peter, are you going to try to take the cup of obedience away from me? The cup, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There are rebukes and there are rebukes. Such a stunning rebuke here. But it's also tender in its own way. 
it, it, it's, it, it's not as if he condemns Peter. He doesn't. It's not as if, by the way, we don't have the temptation to take the kingdom by force. It's, uh, it, it's not as if it would not be convenient at times for us to think we could solve matters with a sword, but we can't. And Peter didn't. And Jesus made that clear. Verse 12 tells us, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So again, they're, they're acting like they're arresting an insurrectionist, which is exactly what the Jewish authorities are trying to convince the Roman governor and his authorities that Jesus is, an insurrectionist, a threat to Rome. What do you do? You bound him. You bind him, and they, and they, and they bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Yes, it was Caiaphas who said that. It was Caiaphas who, acting on behalf of the protection of the temple authorities and of the Jewish establishment, said, look, if, if, if this Jesus movement, if one man has to die for the peace of the nation, then so be it. This is his father-in-law to whom Jesus has been taken. We pretty much know how this family is going to respond. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You're not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Interesting question. Why is this disciple not mentioned? Is it because the disciple's identity is not important? No, it's probably because it was John. Probably because of John describing himself here. It's not a certainty in the text, but it, it is rather implied in the text. And the interesting thing is that this disciple is known to the high priest. We don't know why, we just know that it's true. So, as it turns out, even though Jesus had said, if you come to arrest me, then let these men go, there were two who stayed with Jesus. And again, that's another reason why we should assume this is Peter and John. It would be the Peter and John with Jesus at the Transfiguration. It would be Peter and John who have played these similar roles in so many other places. It's, it's, it's Peter, however, in this case, who stands outside the door, and it's John who goes in. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Okay, what is that? What the... The servant girl who kept watch at the door? What, 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 what does that mean? Is she a soldier? No, it doesn't mean watch like that. It meant that she was at the beck and call of the one who might call her. And so her assignment was to stand at that door so that she could hear the voice and respond to any command. It's a, it's a picture of servanthood, indeed, of a, what could be here compulsory servanthood. Uh, servanthood and, and, and servant responsibility. We don't know. She's just referred to as a servant girl who kept watch at the door. 
She brought Peter in. But you'll notice she speaks to Peter. She discerns that he must be one of the disciples of Jesus. You're not one of this man's disciples, are you? It's, it is perhaps in our memory more of a, an adversarial question, more of an aggressive question. In the context, it's not even really an aggressive question. It may just have been a statement of curiosity. There's, we, we, we know not the allegiance nor the state of the heart of this serving girl, but she looks at Peter and she looks, sees in him someone that must have been one of his disciples. But it also tells us that perhaps this servant girl had an interest in Jesus and thus an interest in his disciples. She's observing. She must have been observing for some time. The key issue here is, of course, the response of Peter. He said, I am not. Simple statement, I am not. The servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was with them, standing and warming himself. Just trying to follow characters in the Old Testament, and then fast forward to trying to follow characters in the New Testament. And you think of a character of the multifaceted nature of Peter. I mean, mean, Peter's faith could be such that in Matthew chapter 16, when the other disciples appear not to know what to say, and Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Then Simon, son of John, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Where did that come from? Well, it, it came from It came from heaven, as Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood do not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And and he called him the rock and and renamed him Petros, rock. This excites some people, thinking that this means that an earthly human authority in the name of Christ is now set to rule. And even as will be argued later, to rule infallibly. But in Matthew chapter 16, Peter named the rock, having been Simon just a matter of you know, minutes before, is confronted by Jesus when Jesus tells them that he's going to die uh, on the cross. And, and Peter says, no, that's not the plan. And Jesus rebukes him in the strongest language imaginable, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, so much for the infallible rock of the church. It turns out that Peter is capable of the greatest courage and of the greatest conviction. And and without Peter, we would not, at least used by the Holy Spirit, Peter used by the Holy Spirit is the human source of the words that are the very bedrock of the Christian church. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's the one on the day of Pentecost filled with the Holy Spirit would be able to preach to thousands. And this is is Peter who also preaches again in Acts chapter 4 along with John. There we go, Peter and John again. They're Peter and John, and they're dragged before the Sanhedrin. And, and, and when the Sanhedrin says, you must stop preaching, the disciples told them, well, you do what you have to do. We're going to do what we have to do, but we're going to preach the word. But this is also the Peter who now, in the shortest sentences that are possible in Greek in order to answer the girl's question, there's, there's no, unless he just said not. It's the shortest statement of betrayal, I am not. Peter's 
with the soldiers standing and warming themselves. And again, it's very hard to know what to do with this. Well, here's something. He hasn't left Jesus. He, he hasn't abandoned him. He, he's not, he hasn't scurried off someplace. He and John are, are with Jesus even now. And again, we're not sure it's John, but by implication, it's John. He has the courage not to run away. And, and the soldiers know who he is. He cut off the ear of one of their companions, and he's there warming himself by the fire. This is a very strange account. In verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've always, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. And, and that's exactly what, what has taken place. You know, Jesus went to the synagogues and taught. Many of the confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees actually took place in a synagogue, such as in Capernaum, as we find in Matthew chapter 13. And when Jesus you know, is presented with a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees say, you know, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus rebukes them, saying, first of all, he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, just before this event. And Jesus said, God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know how to take care of an animal. If it falls into a pit on the, on, on the Sabbath day, you'd pull it out. Of how much more worth is a man than an animal, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and Jesus restored it just like the other. Jesus said, I didn't do these things in, in secret. I didn't say these things in secret. I, I spoke at the temple. Yeah, that, that really ticked you off. But yes, I, I taught at the temple. Remember the temple where he was when he was 12? Even You might say Jesus was even beginning his earthly ministry in some sense when at 12, he was found in the temple when he had to tell his own parents, this is my father's house. Did you not think I would be about my father's business? 12-year-old Jesus with the cup. But as we come to a close today, and we'll come back to this paragraph next Lord's Day, Jesus' point here is, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a secret. Jesus did not speak the gospel. He didn't teach. He didn't perform his miracles. He didn't reveal his, his deity in secret. It's an open truth. And uh, that's why you go immediately from Jesus saying, I did not speak in secret, to Jesus telling his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them. Let's pray, and I'll come back. Father, we're thankful that you've given us this time together. We pray that you will apply this word to our hearts we might grow in grace to your glory. Amen.